This message was originally given at Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. Let's listen to the Word of God from our Sunday morning service. After the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26, and we are continuing, uh, continuing our study of Matthew's gospel, and this time hitting probably which is one of the most well-known acts or events, the most infamous events in Peter's life, and that was his three-time denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Josh led us last week from chapter 26, beginning in verse 47, where Jesus was arrested by this mob of temple soldiers and really scoundrels that were hired by the priests and the elders and um, from Jerusalem, you know, it, it's one of those moments to where it was the moment to where they had been plotting and scheming to finally get to. Their animosity and their hatred of the Lord Jesus was intense the day he arrived in Jerusalem at the beginning of his Passion Week, and now their plan of seizing him and ultimately killing him was finally underway. Of course, what they don't realize is that all of this was also the divine plan as well. You know, all of the gospel writers, all four of them, recount the trial of Jesus, but what they also do is they introduce this sort of parallel narrative that occurs, which, is involved, which involves the, the Apostle Peter. You, you have the narrative here of describing the trial, you know, the arrest and the trial of the Lord Jesus, but in between all of this is another episode of something that is happening in the midst of the Jesus' trial going on, and it is the temptation that Peter faces in the very courtyard of the high priest's house of his compound. Matthew, interestingly, is by far the least descriptive of all the gospel writers. His account of Peter's denial in Matthew 26, 69 through 75, is the shortest account of that episode of all the gospel writers. Matthew is just straight to the point. And as a result of that, you'll notice in your bulletin, we did something a little different this morning. You had colors, a color-coded narrative in your bulletin. And, I, and if you didn't get one of these when you came in, um, you can raise your hand or something. We'll get someone to get one to you, or you can look on next to somebody else. And the reason for this is because there's a lot, because of Matthew's brevity, because of the way Matthew recounts the story of Jesus's denial, of Peter's denial of Jesus in the courtyard, there's a lot of just details. There's a lot of information that Matthew doesn't provide that the other gospel writers do. And so, what this, what you have in your hand here is really exactly, it's called the gospel harmony of Peter's denial. It is an attempt to take all four witnesses of the gospels themselves and blend them together into a single narrative to help us understand how this event unfolded from beginning to end. And so, rather than reading your Bibles, you are still reading the Bible, by the way. I don't want anyone to take that with somehow compromised here. I want you instead to read. Let's read together off this paper, because then this is going to give us an account blended together by all four gospel writers. So, those who had seized Jesus, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. Now, they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. But Peter was following him at a distance, and so was another disciple, now that disciple was known to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door on the outside. And so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and brought Peter inside. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself out the fire to see the outcome. 
Then they, that's the scribes and the Pharisees, they spat in Jesus' face, they beat him with their fists, and the others struck his face and said, Prophesy to us, you Messiah, you Christ, who was the one who hit you? Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, and having made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were warming themselves, and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and the slave girl who kept the door Seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looked intently at him and said, You too are with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. And a little later... And Luke tells us that it's about an hour had passed. The bystanders came up. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear was cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? And further he said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. And then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept. And Matthew actually says he went out and wept violently. And so, Father, this morning as we examine this text, I pray, God, that you would give us the understanding of how to be prepared, Lord, of being able to find grace in times of need, and Lord, to even to understand, Lord, how Peter, what events led in his life to this failure, Lord, may that instruct us on how to be on guard even in our own lives, but even, Lord, that when we do fail, help us, Lord, to be able to find grace and help in this time, in, in times of our greatest needs and to always pursue repentance. So, Father, instruct us with your word this morning. May your spirit guide our study this morning. And, God, may you be glorified, we pray, in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You know, the account of Peter's denial really began, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, back in Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. It was the episode at the last Passover, the very last supper, that the Lord Jesus Christ announced the new covenant that was done, you know, through his body and his blood with his disciples. And Jesus makes that, that stunning and shocking announcement of saying that on this very night, he is going to be struck, killed basically, and all of you will desert me, you will abandon me. And he quotes from the prophet Zechariah and, 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 and reminding them, even what the prophets had spoken beforehand, that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. But what's interesting is when we looked at that, what we noticed about it was that there was two different types of confidence that were at work. Jesus was confident that what he said was going to happen, and the disciples were confident that what he spoke would not happen. Jesus' confidence was based upon what the prophets had written beforehand. And the disciples' confidence, well, they just issued a stern rebuttal of what Jesus said because in their, in, in their passion and in their emotion, they responded by saying, we will, and quote, never abandon you. The rebuttal was led by Peter himself. Peter led the entire group. And essentially, all of the disciples were basically echoing Peter's response and saying, well, we will never leave you. And Jesus reiterates his prediction, and then, and, and this time, he includes a sign by saying that before a rooster crows, before the night will even expire, guys, Peter, before sunup, you will deny me three times. Listen, Peter loved the Lord Jesus, and without any 
doubt. Such an idea, such an action was unfathomable to Peter. And so within a few moments later, Jesus invites his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to a smaller remote place on the Mount of Olives to go and have prayer with them. And of course, if you remember that scene when we studied that, you know, Jesus invites them to pray and Jesus goes off by himself to pray. And every time he returns, what did he find? They were sleeping. He found them sleeping. Why? It was late. They were weary. They had a long day. A lot was going on. And Jesus kept invoking them to pray because he knew something. He knew that the enemy never sleeps. Jesus uttered that very well-known sentence in Matthew 26, 41, and saying, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. And the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. All these guys had good intentions. Not a single one of them could even imagine uh, that, that after spending this many years with the Lord Jesus Christ and loving him like they did, they could not imagine that they would ever abandon him in the moment that he needed them the most. But by the time that Jesus is arrested and hauled off into this trial in the Sanhedrin, you find him completely alone without any disciples, only instead Peter and John just kind of hanging and tagging in a bit of a distance. You see, this was at the heart of the problem for these guys. They were, as Jesus was trying to point out to them, that they were not alert. They overestimated their zeal. They overestimated their own strength. And they figured by their own strength that no matter what unfolded, they would be able to handle it. And Jesus kept returning and imploring them to pray and to keep alert, to keep watching. Why? Because it was going to be the only way that they could actually overcome the temptation. So when Jesus finally looked down the Mount of Olives and looked down the valley there and he saw Judas with this band of the temple guards that were approaching, the disciples, you know, rather than, you know, this was, the, this was supposed to be their moment of confidence. This was supposed to be their moment where they were going to stand with Jesus. But instead, when the soldiers came up, they were shocked. They were startled. They were completely unprepared. And What's amazing about that is that Jesus has been telling them this was going to happen for quite some time. Ever since that night in Caesarea Philippi, back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had warned them then that he was going to be arrested, killed, and resurrected. Jesus had been warning them that this was God's plan overall. And yet when it finally begins to unfold, they are so unprepared, they're not thinking about those things biblically, they respond impulsively, even trying to start, you know, Peter takes out a sword, cuts off Malchus's ear. They respond impulsively, they're unprepared, they're shocked, they're startled, all of these things happen even though Jesus had been warning them that all of this was going to happen and that this was exactly a part of God's plan all along. Peter finds himself in a spot now where his failure to think biblically, his failure to even think about the things that Jesus had been teaching them, the failure to pray, the failure to stay alert, the failure to do those very things that Jesus had warned him about, led him to a place where he was now actually in opposition to the will of God. Peter's actions and the disciples' actions were in direct conflict now to the will of God. And so when Jesus is taken away, as was foretold, the disciples fled and they scattered in fear. It's important for us to recount that because as we explore Peter's denial, what we learn from that is that the seeds of Peter's denial were sown long before it actually, the, the denials actually happened. 
There was a progressive steps of things that were taking place that led to this point to where Peter would deny the Lord Jesus Christ because they were self-confident. They were self-reliant. They were unprepared. They were not ready for that moment despite all of the warnings that Jesus had been given. They felt like they had control. They felt like they were ready to face whatever came their way. They couldn't imagine ever abandoning the Lord Jesus Christ. But what they did not understand, and what we have to understand, is that often the hardest battles you will ever face in your life are not the battles you can see with your own eyes, but the battles that you can't see. That's why Jesus kept calling his disciples to be alert in prayer. By being alert, they could recall what Jesus kept foretelling them about his upcoming arrest, his murder, his resurrection. And by prayer, they would find dependence on the Father. So that way, when that moment of temptation came, they would have the spiritual stamina to be able to withstand. We need to consider how biblically alert we are this morning. We need to consider our own prayer lives. I know many Christians struggle in this area. I mean, so many believers struggle in this area of just being disciplined and reading their scriptures and having prayer. I hear it all the time. But let me tell you something. You know why you struggle there? You struggle there, and you've got to be spiritually wise enough to recognize this. You struggle in those two areas because that's the very places the enemy does not want you to go. You have to understand your lack of desire for prayer is specifically a temptation from the evil one to not go there. Scripture and prayer are the offensive weapons given to the child of God. And why do you think those are the two biggest areas you struggle with in your Christian walk? you gotta, you got to realize it's not just about something where you've got to use your own personal strength and your own personal disciplines. We, we talk about prayer. It's a discipline. When I think of discipline, I don't think happy thoughts, Okay. It is a discipline, but listen, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to approach the throne of grace, but the enemy of God does not want you approaching it. That's why you struggle. So we come to the temptation that's in the courtyard. And as we read through this narrative, this harmony of all the four gospels there, we, we, we learn from the apostle John that they led Jesus to the household of Annas first. You know, it's interesting, back in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, we learn from Luke that Luke actually tells us in chapter 3 that Annas and Caiaphas were actually high priests at the same time. And part of the reason for that was because Annas uh, was deposed. He basically uh, was set down as being high priest by the Roman government when Vitellius Gratus uh, in... Uh, basically the year 18, appointed Caiaphas uh, to, be his high, to be the high priest instead. So the problem was is that Annas was still recognized culturally in that society as still really kind of being the, the high priest. But Caiaphas is the one who was high priest in name and official title because he was sanctioned by the Roman government. And that's the reason why they led Jesus through the house of Annas first and then to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so when Jesus was taken to the high priest compound, and we really should understand the house as being a compound. It's about equivalent to a three-story structure on the eastern side of the Jerusalem Mount. And essentially, it, as you walked inside, I want to try to give you a visual because when you, there, there's an outer gate that faces the street. And as you walk through the gate, you walk through a vestibule, and then up the stairs from the vestibule, you walk into this open courtyard that has pavers, stone pavers all in it, and then there are walled chambers all around. In front of them would have been a large room, which is which was the room that Jesus was being tried in. To their right would have been steps that are going down into some uh, to to some uh, uh, really kind of bathrooms bath. Uh, bath houses where ceremonial cleansing was done, and there was a storeroom off to their left. And so, what we learn is that 
Jesus, uh, that, that Peter himself, he wanted to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, but he didn't have access to get inside the high priest's home. But John, the apostle, lets us know that he actually knows the family. He actually knows the family, and as a result of that, he's able to get inside the actual compound of the high priest and go and speak with the family and speak with the servant girl who was, guard, who was keeping the gate there and was able to grant Peter access inside the compound. It's interesting, I learned, uh, I read a lot from an archaeologist, Leon Rittmeyer, who actually uncovered the compound itself and says that the reception hall was actually 33 by 21 and could easily, feet that is, and could easily accommodate the 71 elders who were there for the rigged and unjust trial. So as we learn and we look back and we remind ourselves of the self-confidence that we saw back in chapter, chapter 26 earlier, Peter now having moved himself, you know, through John being able to help him, Peter now moving himself into the very courtyard next to the room where Jesus is being tried. I mean, Peter was trying to get as close as he could so he could just kind of hear and what was happening. But Peter was also trying to remain anonymous among this crowd who was gathered around a fire pit in the middle of the courtyard. And the problem is that what we're about to see is that all of that confidence that we saw in Peter before was about to reveal its frailty. The problem is that while Peter was curious, he was trying to remain anonymous, as I just said. If you think about this imagery for just a moment, Peter literally walked right into the middle of hostility. (laughs) He walked into the courtyard itself and sat right next to the very soldiers who had just arrested Jesus. Peter was in the hotbed of resistance against Jesus. The very home of those who hated Jesus the most. Out of his own curiosity and his own interest to to, to still stay close enough to hear, what he did was ultimately walked himself right into the hotbed of temptation. But you know, that's often what happens when we're not alert. It's what happens. It should be, listen, I thought about this. I thought this about, this about myself, you know, that if we are unprepared, if we're not spiritually alert, we can often find ourselves, if not even invite ourselves, right into the very location of temptation. When we're not prayerful, when we're not thinking biblically, when, we're not pre- when we are unprepared to face temptation, you know, we may find ourselves walking right into it. It's interesting to me that the Apostle Peter, years later, would write these words in 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit and be on alert. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He knew that firsthand, didn't he? The enemy wants to keep us distracted. He wants to keep us spiritually drowsy. The enemy wants us to avoid prayer. He wants us to be overconfident. He wants us unprepared so he can walk us right in the very center of temptation so we will collapse in our fragile and self-confident state. And the gospel writers all present Peter's denials, really, in three escalating stages. Each time, Peter's denial of the Lord Jesus Christ gets stronger and stronger. You probably noticed that when we read it. And Peter is, again, he's sitting in this paved courtyard. He's in the center of it, outside the reception hall. He's at the fire with the servants, with the soldiers. He can hear Jesus being falsely accused, even by the Sanhedrin. And just before Peter's first denial, you you can't help but to notice the irony in what they said. The priest are beating him. They're striking the Lord Jesus Christ in the face. And here there's just a a pile of them and they're hitting him and they're sporting with him and saying, prophesy to us, you Messiah, who's the one that hit you? And the irony of that whole scene right there is yet everything is happening exactly as he foretold. (laughs) 
Luke tells us that a servant girl, the actual servant girl who kept the door, she was staring at Peter. She could see his face from the firelight as they were sitting inside the courtyard. And she's staring over and she's looking intently at Peter. And she accused Peter as being one of the followers of Jesus. You know, probably as, I, as we read that text together, you, you probably noticed something. That in each, in each accusation that was made about Peter, there was some kind of remark about Nazareth, about Galilee, or about their accent. They could tell that they were foreigners with respect to Jerusalem. And it's interesting because the term Galilean, the term Nazareth, these are, not, these are not just designations of where they are from. These are pejorative terms. They're using these phrases in a sense of making fun of them. The terms are used to, be, to belittle them. It's the way that Judeans thought. I mean, really, Jerusalem was elitist, metro, and considered basically anyone from the northern Galilean regions to basically be very inferior in social class. This also helps us to understand something. One of the things that just bothers me, and I hope I'm not hurt, stepping on anybody's toes, but one of the things that bothers me here is the way we teach sort of Palm Sunday to the crucifixion. Probably because the way that most of us have kind of heard that story is that everybody loved Jesus when he came to town, right? But then five days later... Crucify him, right? That's the way we typically... But what most of us don't understand is that when you read the Gospels, Jesus, the people who were, who were basically waving the palm branches of his royalty and calling him Messiah in these things and saying, you know, Hosanna, blessed is the son of David, the ones who were saying those things were the Galileans that Jesus was ministering to in the northern region. If you remember, it was the week of Passover. It was a pill, it was a, the, 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 the week of Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's a pilgrimage feast. So people traveled all from the northern region. And so basically when Jesus got to the city, it was all those who were from Galilee that got there before him who were welcoming him inside the city. That's the reason why everyone who was in Jerusalem and said, who is this? They have never been a friend of his from the beginning. Jerusalem has always been the center of hostility and the seat of rejection of the Lord Jesus' ministry. So there's always been this disdain and this sort of cultural clash between the northern regions in Galilee and the population, the citizenry there, and the ones who were in Jerusalem. Something for us to keep in mind. I mean, you can even see that. You remember when, uh, you remember when, uh, when Philip found Nathaniel in John chapter 1? They go up to him and say, hey man, we found the Messiah. He's Jesus of Nazareth. And what's, remember Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, it's like, you sure about that, boys? <laughs> you know, I mean, there was no hope that anything good could come out of this northern region of Galilee. That was the stereotype that was against this region. Those in Jerusalem had always hated Jesus because he threatened established power. And so Peter's first response here was when the, when the servant girl, by the way, a, a servant girl, it wasn't a soldier, it wasn't a priest, it wasn't somebody who was threatening in power, it was a servant girl who approached him and just said, you are with Jesus the Galilean. And of course Peter tries to evade the whole situation. He just escapes it by pleading ignorance. And after pleading ignorance with this girl, he then feels uncomfortable, so he moves away from the fire, and he begins to move his way over toward the gate. Luke then tells us that another servant girl found him, and she was with a little bit of a larger group, or, or with a group of people, and she then turns around and says, so you are with Jesus of Nazareth. This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, this time, Peter steps up. He's feeling afraid. He's feeling embarrassed. He's feeling under pressure. And as a result of that, he steps up his denial by this time declaring an oath. By saying before God, I do not know this man. And so seeing this intensity, and then of course the third time, Luke tells us that about an hour goes by. And you could see this. I mean, Peter had made his way kind of to the gate. He'd kind of gotten away. 
But about an hour or so later, you know, passes and Peter kind of works his way back up close to the reception hall where Jesus was being tried because he, remember, he wanted to be able to hear what was going on. So about an hour later, after he kind of worked his way back up by the reception hall, Luke tells us, well, all the Gospels do, that they tell us that as Peter was standing there, another group of soldiers and servants came into the courtyard. Another whole band of them kind of made their way into the courtyard. And as they did, what was interesting was that one of those servants who was a part of that new group that came in recognized Peter because he saw him in the garden and and he saw him in the... uh, in the Mount of Olives, in the garden. And this time, Peter was gripped with fear because this accuser was related to Malchus, the very guy that Peter cut his ear off. Kind of hard to escape this one. You know, you know oh yeah, I just cut your cousin's ear. I, I kinda, you, know, you can't just say, I don't know the guy, because obviously, you do. Peter was gripped with fear And this time, feeling fearful, trapped, and angry, and acting out of his flesh, he intensified his denial to the highest degree by cursing his life, saying, God, kill me, and I be damned if I know that guy. That is the force of what Peter said. I'm not being flippant. I want you to understand the force of what Peter said. Could you imagine... It was about 3.30 in the morning when he uttered those words, and then all of a sudden, a rooster crowed, and Luke writes what is probably some of the most terrifying words that you could ever read in Scripture, is that when that rooster crowed, Jesus looked at Peter. And when Peter, when Jesus looked at him, it was like, he remembered everything that Jesus said, everything that Jesus had taught, and his, and his guilt came crashing over like a tsunami. Peter fled the compound, and Matthew describes Peter's weeping, a Greek word called pikros. He describes it, that's a word that is often used to describe somebody being stabbed, or somebody being cruel, or somebody being violent, or something harsh. Matthew writes that, that Peter leaves there, and his guilt is so overwhelming that his weeping is violent. Because he is so overwhelmed with the guilt. You know, there are many lessons that we can learn from this event, but I I, want to focus on three for just a moment. The, The first one I want you to notice, and this may not seem to be connected to the passage, but it's something I hope you'll you'll appreciate. The first thing I want you to notice is this that the Bible is clear that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Now hang with me. So what do you make out of that? This seems disconnected from the text. Because I think that we should be impressed at the fact that the Bible tells us the failure of the church's greatest leader. Think about that. The Bible is so authentic Its testimony is so true that the Bible unashamedly tells us the failures of its leaders. Why? To help us understand and and to remind us that our salvation is secure only in the work of Jesus and no one else. We don't venerate saints. We don't have statues of saints. We don't pray to saints. Why? Because our salvation is in Jesus alone. That is why it is amazing that the Bible gives us not only the triumphs of so many saints, but also their failures, because we can learn from their examples. The second thing I want you to notice is this, that Peter's failures are a warning to us of being spiritually alert. You know, this event made a huge impact in the lives of the disciples, even for the Apostle Paul, who wasn't even a follower of Jesus during this time frame. You know, there's certain words and phrases that Jesus used in the Olivet Discourse and the Last Supper. And, you know, he talked about being alert. He talked about, you know, always being ready. 
That theme of readiness, that theme of preparation, that themes of being alert are all throughout Matthew chapters 24 through 26. They're all throughout those chapters. And the Apostle Paul, reflecting back on that, says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And then in verse 6, he says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert. That is, keep awake, be watchful, and be sober. In other words, be clear-headed. The word sober complements the idea of being self-disciplined and being attentive it actually helps us to understand that, that to be sober is also to be self-denying. In other words, to remain alert, there are certain things you have to deny yourself in order to make sure that your spiritual alertness is not impaired. That's the reason why the word sober is used there. You avoid something in order to make sure that you're not spiritually impaired to be able to be alert. We have to be alert. We have to be attentive to our own pride. We have to be attentive to our own self-confidence, our self-reliance. We have to be alert to our own distractions, drowsiness, and spiritual lethargy that contributes to us being unprepared. Being sober is to think clearly about where you are spiritually. It's examining your heart. It's examining yourself about where you are. And if you are prepared and able to face temptations. Listen, you know, one of the things that this passage so did for me was helping me to examine my own prayer life, to examine my own study of Scripture. And that's what we have to do is to examine these things and what are influences, what are likes and what are interests and what are things in our life that compete against us being prepared? What is it that threatens us to undo our spiritual sobriety to making sure that we are ready when temptation strikes? Being sober, being alert. It's the very vocabulary we read back in 1 Peter 5, 8 of being sober, being alert because the enemy is always looking for someone to devour. Peter learned that lesson well. And those are questions that we have to ask. What do we need to deny in our lives so that we can be ready when temptation strikes? What things must the Holy Spirit help us to change so that we can be prepared to overcome temptation when it strikes? We have an enemy who seeks our downfall. We have an enemy who delights in making us spiritually drowsy. An enemy who delights in making us overconfident and distracted by so many things in order to keep us unprepared. And the New Testament begs us to learn from Peter's collapse so that it will also not be ours. Third, Peter's denials challenge us to think about who and what we fear. We've already spoken this morning as we opened up talking about the coronavirus and the COVID-19 outbreak and how our society is driven in many ways to panic. And listen, it's good to explore our fears and understand them in light of what the Bible teaches. I mean, it's one thing to be cautious and to be careful and making sure we don't spread viruses and, and do these types of things. But, you know, our culture, we have to also recognize that all around us are people who worship health, worship fitness. Why? Because they're terrified of death. You, you can be healthy. You can eat well. You can avoid spreading germs. But you do so out of responsibility and stewardship and concern for others, not because you're terrified of death and you worship this present life. It's a big difference. And so we must live soberly. We have to be clear thinking. We have to live in a balanced way to understand that we can be careful but not fearful, even in the face of disease and death. 
But I also want you to look at something else. In Matthew's gospel, earlier, back even in chapter 10, the Lord Jesus challenged his disciples when he said, listen, you're going to go out and you're going to minister in my name and people are going to respond to you with hostility. And he says this to them, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And what Jesus is referring to is exactly what we see in our text this morning, that one of Peter's problems was misplaced fear. It was a misplaced fear that he had. Peter, like many of us, fear the wrong things, which is what causes, many times, our loyalties to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what I'm about to say to you. That misplaced fear is what will make, many times, our loyalty to Jesus circumstantial and frail. The fear of physical safety, maybe threats of verbal abuse by others, maybe even, maybe even the threat of a job loss or a loss of business because of having to keep a moral standard or purity, whatever it may be, there are many things that can weigh heavy in temptations and cause us to be tempted to deny our association with the Lord Jesus. And what happened with Peter, it started out as a simple pretense for ignorance. And what we kept seeing was that Peter's denials just kept escalating and escalating until eventually his denials morphed into this brazen, bald-faced denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something for just a moment. Do not think for a moment that denials happen only verbally. The Bible warns us that there are those in the church who profess to be Christian. And in 2 Timothy 3, 5, Paul says they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So avoid such men as these. You notice the Bible says there they denied his power. What power is he talking about? It means the power of a transformed life. It means a, it means a life that their desires, their actions, their lifestyle, their practices, their speech, their interests, their delights, their entertainments, or whatever it is, their life is characterized as being ultimately inconsistent with anybody who is a real follower of Christ. You can profess all day long verbally you belong to Jesus and anybody can do it when you're sitting around a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ in a church service, but what happens when you're out from the view of those who know what you profess? Talking with my children, saying integrity is what you do when nobody else knows what you're doing. When talking about fearing others, most of it is our society is struggling not with necessarily the fear of a job loss or the fear of being abused in the street or being pummeled by someone because of our association to Jesus. You know, the biggest fear that most of us struggle with is the fear of, not, the fear of being unaccepted by others. That's most of our fear. The fear of being rejected. The fear, because that fear is harder to overcome than just a brazen persecution. In fact, I'll even go so far as to say that probably for many of us, it is easier to die for Jesus than to live in a world where no one will accept us because we live for him. That's often easier. Easier to have your life lost because you follow Christ versus living your life for him and being rejected by everybody else. And that kind of fear of rejection grips so many of us. And as a result, we cower in our witness to Christ. You always have the people, especially you know, the men maybe, you know, some guys out there, I don't really care what people think. But you know what they don't realize is that by making that statement, they actually do. Because that statement is meant to impress other people about their own self-reliance. You do care about what people think. That's why you said it. 
Unfortunately, too many in our society, especially even in the church, are enslaved to the fear of rejection because in our world, we place higher value and higher reverence for for wealth, political power, influence, beauty, or attractiveness, and education. We place a higher value over those things than we do the fear of the Lord. And that is why we have to ground ourselves in Scripture. We have to pray and keep our fears in proper perspective to have a, to, so that way when temptation comes, we can view it correctly, we can sniff it out, we can see it, and we can have the spiritual tenacity to persevere through by the strength of Christ's Spirit. Amen. Let me wrap up by just reminding us, though, that Peter had a momentary slip. It was not a permanent fall. You know, the story of Peter's life didn't end there. I mean, certainly Peter denied the Lord Jesus on that night, but you know, you you remember what Jesus told Peter. What he told him prior to all of that happening, when, when, when Peter was saying, Lord Jesus, I would never do this. I would never leave you. I'll never abandon you. And Jesus says to him what Luke tells us in Luke 22, that he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail you. And when, and when you, and you, when you, uh, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. <laughs> You know, the Lord Jesus was praying to the Father. Even before Peter faced that trial, by the grace of God, Peter shed tears of repentance, and as a result of that, he was able to be restored. The Apostle Paul says that godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. And this is the great contrast between Peter and Judas. There was remorse over sin, but remorse over sin is not the same thing as repentance from sin. But what we love is to hear things like this. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer of Hebrews tells us that in, the, that in all of our weaknesses, he says, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, because we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, yet as we are, but yet he is without Sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <laughs> the Lord knows our weaknesses. Isn't this amazing? You have a Savior who's been tempted in all things, and He's able to sympathize with us. And He draws us and begs us to come to His throne of grace for that we can find our help in time of need. And last thing I just want to say, in John chapter 21, after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus met the disciples on the shore of the Lake of Galilee, and he had breakfast kind of fixed for them. Actually, he did. Had some bread, had some fish. Jesus had a campfire. And then John writes this. He says that when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said, well, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And then he said it to him a third time. Do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. It's interesting. Peter was grieved because Jesus had to ask a third time. You know why? Because every time Jesus asked that question, it was like twisting a knife in his gut because it, was, it reminded him of the sin that he'd committed. But the Lord Jesus restored Peter gave him the task of being the shepherd over the church in Jerusalem. And when Peter, because of his weeping, because of his repentance, because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and praying for him beforehand, and he restored Peter. And so that when Peter finally stood up in the middle of the city of Jerusalem 
He preached a sermon, this time not afraid, but preached a sermon this time so bold that 3,000 people gave their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. Maybe you identify with Peter this morning. Maybe you can see where you've got misplaced fear in your life. Maybe you can see that you've got guilt in your life or sins that you have committed. Maybe, you can, maybe there's something here in Peter's life that you can identify with. My prayer for you is that you will weep the tears of repentance before our God and experience the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and be restored. And the Lord may use that to make us prepared and always ready to face temptation. And so, Father, I pray that is our prayer this morning. I pray, Lord, that if our hearts have been convicted about, Lord, that maybe we have feared rejection of others, maybe we have been unprepared, maybe we've been lazy and, and undisciplined in pursuing you and the knowledge of your word and prayer and even the fellowship with the saints around your word. I pray that if those are things, Lord, that have been going on in our lives, Lord, may we pursue repentance. God, forgive us of our iniquities. Forgive us for our spiritual laziness. Forgive us for negligence. Forgive us, Lord, for where we have been distracted and not sober. Lord, help us, even this morning, Lord, help us this morning, Lord, to find our strength and our confidence in you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to understand and remember we have you as our great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because you experienced every one of them, yet you were without sin. And you graciously come to the aid of us who were tempted. So Lord, help us to seek you to find grace. Help us to seek you to have fine help. Because Lord, we are saved by your grace. And we must remember, Lord Jesus, that we are also kept by your grace. And so it is in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Covenant Baptist Church in Valdosta, Georgia. At Covenant, we strive to provide a fellowship that is sound in doctrine, biblical in practice, and loving in our relationship with each other and the community. For more from our elders and teachers, please visit us at covenantbapt.org. That's covenantbapt.org for teachings, articles, and more information about our community.